Amen, amen. Welcome, Cornerstone people and friends. So good to worship with you. Loved that hymn from the, what was it, 1675, was it? Yeah, loved it. Thank you for that. There's more of those coming, some oldies with some updating in them. They're coming our way at Cornerstone. So good to be here with you. We're coming to that part of the service called the sermon. And before the sermon, we typically have a scripture reading, and today is a typical day, so we're going to be reading today from Hebrews chapter 2. Thank you very much. We're looking at verses 10 through 18. Please follow. I'll read them for you. This is God's holy word. For it was fitting. That's one of the main points, so I'm going to say it again. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist... In bringing many sons to glory, here's what was fitting, that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Christ's suffering was fitting. For he who sanctifies Christ and those who are sanctified, believers, all have one source. Literally, they're all of one. That is why he is not ashamed to call them Brothers, saying, quote, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise, end quote. And again, quote, I will put my trust in him. And again, quote, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, the same things, for a purpose, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. Bow with me and let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time in your holy word. Thank you for this passage that awaits our attention. Please give us attentive hearts. May this be a day of saving grace for sinners who are outside of Christ. May this be a day of strengthening and building for all who are in Christ. We pray for our boys and girls downstairs as teachers labor, labor for their souls, labor to teach them your holy word, open little eyes and open little hearts to receive Jesus Christ and to believe on him. We pray for all in the name of Christ with thanksgiving. Amen. Well, it is an unusual day at Cornerstone Community Church because I'm giving you an actual sermon title. I just thought it would help you to understand where this passage is going. It's a little hard to deal with, and I want to give you some help up front. So the sermon title is Jesus, Why His Incarnation, and Why His Suffering, His Normal Suffering as Humans Suffer, and Why Especially His Final Suffering, His Suffering in Death on Calvary's Cross. And I could have added, and we will add as we go, and Why Our Consequent Suffering. Why are we suffering? That's what this text is about. Why is incarnation? Why is suffering and death? Why am I suffering? So some of these, some of these Hebrews were getting all wobbly. 
They had professed saving faith in Jesus Christ, but now they're having second thoughts. And some of them are walking back their faith. I'm, I'm leaving Christ. I think he's just a dead rabbi. What good is a dead rabbi? What good is his blood? His blood is common blood. Nothing special about his shed blood. I'm going back to Judaism. It was a better life. I'm going back to a better life, my best life now, if I may. I'm going back to Moses. I'm going back to the law. I'm going back to the old covenant. Forget Jesus Christ. Forget the new covenant. Forget salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's only led me to suffering. They were being persecuted by Rome. They were being persecuted by family. They were being persecuted by other Jewish people. Enough of that. Where has Jesus Christ gotten me? Persecution and suffering. I don't need that. I got enough of that. I'm leaving him. I'm going back. Maybe they were even saying, I have a hunch they were saying, they were saying what humans say when they're suffering. You remember their forefathers, their progenitors back in the book of Exodus and Numbers in particular? What were they doing with God's dealing in their lives? What were they, how were they responding to the suffering? They were grumbling and murmuring and complaining complaining at God that they're suffering, murmuring and grumbling that following Christ has led them to suffering. And that's what these people are doing. This is what their seed is doing. And maybe like many people today, they were saying, maybe, we don't know, maybe like many people today, they were saying, I don't get it. Why? Why does there have to be suffering? Why do believers have to suffer? I thought we had a deal here. Lord, I'm following you. I'm being one of your people. And you let this happen in my life? Why? I just don't get it. We hear people say that as they're walking away from Christ. We hear people say that as they're loosening their hold on Jesus Christ. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of these people weren't saying that exact same thing. Why? I don't get it. It's no surprise that people say that when they're not really saved, when they're not truly regenerated. They're going to wind up complaining at God because 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us the natural man, and that's what they were, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. I don't get it, Lord. looks foolish to me. Neither can they know them because they are spiritually discerned. You have to have the Spirit of God illuminating the eyes of your soul to be able to see and receive what God is actually doing on the planet and in your life. Again, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.23, the cross is a stumbling block to Jews. That's exactly what was happening here. Some of them were stumbling at the cross. The cross is the suffering of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the death of Christ, and their consequent suffering with him. We're done with suffering. We don't want a suffering Christ. We want to go back to Judaism where we didn't suffer. The cross was a stumbling block to them, and it's folly to Gentiles. So what we have here in our text is an apologetic, a defense, an apologetic for the incarnation, the full humanity, the normal human suffering, and the cross-suffering of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and consequently of the suffering of his people. Because as with the Savior, so with his people. As with the Christ, so with his followers. He suffered, we suffer. Now, let me remind you that in, it's interesting, in chapter 1, the first four verses, I'm going to say it again. Some of you are going to roll your eyes. He said it again. In the opening salvo, I just love that phrase. i got to keep saying In the opening salvo, boom, 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 boom. That's a salvo. In the opening salvo, he teaches us about the deity of Jesus Christ. The terms there are staggering. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, the deity of Jesus Christ. And there's more in the first four verses. But now he's turning around and teaching us the humanity of Jesus Christ. He was fully human. He was God and he was human. The two natures perfectly commingled into one Savior, Jesus Christ. He was divine. He was as much God as if he was not human, and he was as much human as if he was not God. Fully God, fully human, that's orthodox doctrine. Let's see how the author develops his case for the humanity of Christ and the suffering of Christ and the suffering of Christians. Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting. You're supposed to look at the suffering of Christ and say, that fits. That makes sense. I get it. It was fitting that he, for whom all things exist, that's the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, that's what God is doing, it is fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It fits. So you're not supposed to look at the suffering of Christ and say, that's stupid. I don't get it. That's offensive. That troubles me. What's Messiah doing suffering? What's Messiah doing dying? No, you're supposed to look at that and say, that fits. What fits? That he, God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory. Let's pause on that phrase. It's glorious. What is God doing? What's this all about? Why creation? Why did God allow the fall and the consequent suffering? Why does God allow suffering? Why did God have to send a Redeemer, Jesus Christ? Why did he have to suffer and die? Why is there a heaven? Why is there a hell? Why is there a last day and judgment? What's the big story here? What's going on? Here's a good way of putting it. There are other ways you can put it. But here's what God is doing. This is all about God bringing many sons to glory. That's what's going on down here. That's the meta narrative. That's what this is all about. God is bringing many sons to glory. Make sure you're one of them. Make sure you're in Christ, ready to appear in his holy presence at the last day and to hear those happy words enter into the joy of your Lord. But that's the big picture. So it was fitting that the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, sons and daughters, we might say, it's fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's fitting. Not a problem. Not stupid. Not, well, that really troubles me. No, it's fitting. He came to offer himself in our place, in the place of humans, his vicarious in our place, substitutionary for us, atoning sacrifice, his propitiating of the Father's wrath that we deserve, his in our place suffering on the cross is fitting for him in redeeming sinners like us. It's fitting that humans suffer because of our fall and it's fitting that Christ suffered because he was human. It all fits. It's not offensive. It fits. 
It's fitting that he was made perfect through suffering. Don't get the wrong idea about that. That doesn't mean that Jesus Christ and eternity past before the days of his incarnation was somehow lacking something. Don't get the impression he was somehow imperfect in some way. No, he shared with the Father and the Holy Spirit all the divine attributes, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and all the perfections of God. He was perfect, lacking nothing, perfectly happy, didn't need to create anybody, didn't need to save anybody to be perfect and perfectly happy. But he became perfect as a savior, perfect as a redeemer in the place of humans by becoming a human who suffered. He was made perfect as a human, as a, as a redeemer in our place through his suffering. It was fitting that he suffered to redeem his people. Isaiah 53 predicted 700 years before he came that Jesus would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. What do you expect you're going to be then when you're one of his followers? You think that you're going to be exempt from sorrows? You're going to be exempt from grief? Some of these Hebrews were troubled by how I follow Jesus, all I got is sorrows. All I got is grief. I don't need that. I'm going back to Moses. Life was better. No, our Savior, the author of our salvation, our forerunner, was a man of sorrows and was acquainted with grief. He experienced the full range of normal human suffering. Have you suffered something? Think of it right now. What have you suffered? I'm thinking of something I suffered. He experienced that. The full range of human suffering. He was beaten. He was crowned with thorns. He drank the cup the Father gave him to drink, the most cruel humiliating death on a Roman cross. And you're to look at that and say, that fits. That makes sense. I get it. Spiritual eyes will say, I get it. The great John Calvin, I'm reading through his commentary, among others, as we go through this, he writes, quote, what? Had God no other way by which he might free us from the misery of this mortality? that he should will the only begotten to become a man by putting on a human soul and flesh and being made to endure the suffering of death, end quote. Calvin says, had God no other way? What's the answer? No, no other way. This is the way that is fitting. This was fitting. Friends, don't be surprised at the suffering of Jesus Christ as a human. Don't be surprised at the suffering of Jesus Christ as the God-man on the cross. And so don't be surprised at your suffering because you're a human and you're not the God-man on the cross. If your Redeemer suffered, how about you? What do you expect? The apostles planted a bunch of churches. Then they took a second missionary journey, Acts 14. And guess what the cheerful message was that they took to every one of those churches? They went to every church, it says, and they told them, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. So don't mistake the terms. It's not, now that I'm one of your blood-bought people, I expect you to make my life really nice. Expect everything's going to be happy, It's going to be hearts and flowers, walk in the park, unicorns. I don't know where unicorns fit in there. It just seemed right. Don't expect that. No, expect to be like him in his earthly sufferings, and one day you'll die too unless he comes back first. Hold fast to Christ, the suffering Christ. Let's go on. Hebrews 2.11. For he who sanctifies, that's our Savior, And those who are sanctified, made holy, that's us, 
all, literally, are all from one. Are all from one. That is why he is not ashamed to call them, you, in Christ, brothers. They're all from one. What does that phrase mean? Much ink has been spilled about the meaning of they're all from one. Who's the one? Some would say, well, it means we're all from God. Christ came from God. We came from God. Maybe, maybe. But then you would have, somebody could also say, what about the angels that he's discounting? They also came from God, but angels aren't in this text. They're not from God. They're not from the same one. Who's the one? So many would say it's Adam. We all came from Adam. That may well be. Others might go back to Abraham, the father of all the faithful. We're all from one. We're all from Abraham, spiritually, if you're a Gentile. Whatever it is, here's the meaning. Don't get lost in the weeds. The meaning is this. We're all human. And he was divine and human and fully human, just as we are human. He who sanctifies Jesus Christ and those who are sanctified are all human, though he was human and divine. And because of our humanity, that is why he is not ashamed to call us brothers. But let's pause for a minute on that phrase, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Those who are sanctified. The word sanctified is the word uh, hagiazo, holy. No, I'm sorry, that's the verb, to be made holy. The noun is uh, hagioi, plural, hagias, singular. That's it. All right. So... They're the ones being sanctified. They're being made holy, hagias. What does Jesus Christ do for you when you place saving faith in him as your God and Savior? He sanctifies you. He makes you holy in two ways, and I want you to know them. The Bible presents both of these ways, and theologians have long used the two terms for the two ways that I'm about to use. This is nothing novel. This sanctification that we have in Christ is definitive and progressive. It is definitive and progressive. What is definitive sanctification? That's what you get the moment you believe. The moment you believe on Jesus Christ as your God and Savior, God sees you in Christ, Colossians 1, I think it's verse 23, where he says he sees you in Christ holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Glory. Wonder of wonders. Lord, you mean me? Are you really? You're talking about me? Didn't you see? I thought you knew my thought. Don't you know? No. He says you're holy because the shed blood of Christ covers all your sins. Bless the Lord. That's what theologians call definitive sanctification. You got it. It doesn't grow. It doesn't know any degrees. You got it or you don't got it. But then there's also progressive holiness. There's progressive sanctification in your actual life. Paul describes this, for example, when he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. This holiness is something you do, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. That's progressive. There are many, many other examples. So there's definitive holiness. God declares you holy due to the shed blood of Jesus. Jesus Christ, and holy you are. And there's progressive holiness. God the Spirit is making you more and more holy as you work out your salvation, for it's God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's progressive. That's actual life change. And he who does both of those, he who sanctifies you definitively and progressively, 
and those who are sanctified, all are all of one. Just as we are human, so he is human, though human and divine. All of one. And that is why he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Brothers. Jesus Christ calls you who are in him, you who are his followers, he calls you my brothers. Brothers. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of love. It's a family term. You're my brothers. He views you as his brothers. And if you have a brother, I hope you like your brother. Do you like your brother? Yeah, there's blood there, right? You love that. You love the people who are your family. Hopefully, it's okay. Jesus Christ loves his people and he calls them brother, which is remarkable. You think, he says brother, and I go like, me? You looking at me or them or who? Who are we talking about here? No, you. Jesus calls me brother. He's not ashamed. You'd think he'd be ashamed to call me his brother. Look at Hartland. What a shame. I'm ashamed of him. What I know about him, true, he ought to be. But no, he's not ashamed to call me and to call you, if you're in Christ, his brother. But when does he do that? The author of Hebrews is saying, Christ calls us brothers. Well, he isn't making that up. When? Where do you get that in the Bible? Where in redemptive history did Jesus call people brother? Let's go read the four Gospels. Let's read Matthew. Not there. Mark? Not. Luke? Not. John? Not. Where is it? Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is from start to finish, an intensely messianic psalm. In Psalm 22, you have the cross as experienced by Jesus. He describes what he's experiencing hanging on the cross 700 years before there was death by a cross. And he tells us what he sees. You get the cross through the eyeballs of our suffering Savior. And then later, you also get the resurrection after he dies on the cross. And this part, when he calls his people brothers, comes in the resurrection part of Psalm 22. Here it is, saying, this is a quote from Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. That's what the resurrected Jesus says to the Father. I will tell of your name to my brothers. He's going to live to do that. And in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. My brothers, that's the part we're after. It's from Psalm 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. He calls you a brother. And in the midst of the assembly, remember what Jesus said in the New Testament? For where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the what? Midst of them. Jesus Christ is here. to. This is the assembly. He is here today. He is in our midst. He is in our midst Worshiping the Father with us. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So we're not singing alone here today. We're singing with our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who's not ashamed to call you brother, sister. Now, don't you go running off wild with that. Don't you take that to a conclusion that it should not take you to. Don't turn that around. Don't you start calling him brother. Yeah, Jesus is my bro. No, some things that work in one direction don't work in the other direction. Some things that are appropriate in one direction are not appropriate in the other direction. Let me illustrate. Suppose I meet the president, the president of the United States, who, whoever he is, whether I like him or not, deserves my respect, Right? Give honor to whom honor is due, to the king, that was Nero, so respect. 
Suppose I meet the president and he calls me Steve. Do I say, oh, that was familial. Now I can call him Joe. Hey, Joe, how's it going? I think the Secret Service men just grabbed me. I think I just disappeared. Like, you don't call him Joe. He is, he can call you Steve. You call him Mr. President. Yes, sir, Mr. President, right? Show him honor and respect for the position he's in. Whether you like him or not, that's not the issue. So he can be familiar with me, but I can't be familiar with him. It doesn't work both ways. So just because Jesus calls you brother doesn't mean you bring him down and you call him, hey, bro, Jesus is my bro. No, he's not your bro. You should be with Doubting Thomas. What did he call Jesus? My Lord and my God. So he can call you brother. You call him my Lord and my God. It'll all be good. We'll all be in our right places. More on Christ's humanity. There's going to be another quote. We're leaving Psalm 22, and we're going to Isaiah chapter 8. And again, Isaiah 8, 17. Here's what Christ said. I will put my trust in him. He was talking about in the days of his humanity, in the days of his earthly pilgrimage, he's going to have to walk like we walk. He's going to have to walk as a human. He's going to have to walk trusting the Father. He trusted the Father. He quoted scripture at his temptation and trusted the Father to strengthen him against temptation. He trusted the Father when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he say? Father, if possible, take this cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He's trusting God with his life. He's trusting God with his suffering. He had to live like humans live, trusting God the Father. Christ said, I'll put my trust in him. He's like us. He's our brother. We're his, he calls us brother. And again, Isaiah 8, 18, Behold, I and the children God has given me. He lumps himself in with the children. There's a bunch of children. Who are they? Redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Christ says, I'm in the midst of them. I'm praising God with them. I and the children who were all gathered here, me and all the redeemed. This is like in glory. Here's Christ. And here's all the redeemed gathered around, and he's in the midst, and we're all worshiping together. That's the picture here. I will put my trust in him. I and the children God has given me. Side note. Notice that phrase, the children God has given me. This is almost an aside. This is bad sermonic form. Don't tell anybody I did this. Because you want to keep tracking with where the sermon's going, which is an apologia for the humanity and suffering of Jesus Christ and so of his people. But I, got, I can't help this. This is an important thing right here. This phrase, I and the children God has given me, that phrase becomes a major repeated, repeated, repeated phrase in John chapter 6 and in John chapter 10. We had a little series in those not long ago. Does anybody remember? Probably not. I'm not complaining. I just know. I don't remember the sermon I listened to last week. You don't either, right? But we were in John 6 and John 10, and we're going to go back there again because I want you to see this phrase that Jesus utters, the children God has given me, comes up in John 6 and John 10. Are you with me? You want to go there? Okay, let's go there. Drink. John 6, 37. Jesus, before the cross, all that the Father gives me. Jesus was aware that there were people that the Father had given him. 
And what about them? They will come to me. Not, oh, I hope I can get them to come to me. No, he's sovereign in this. This is definite. They will come. Every single one of them, they will come. It's definite. They will come. Now, notice he's not talking about all people on the planet because they're not all going to come. They're not all given by the Father to the Son. There's a specific group. The Bible calls them the elect. They were elected in God's eternal counsel before the foundation of the world. And Jesus is referring to them, and he was conscious of them as he's headed to the cross. And he says, all that the Father gives me, they will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So they will persevere. They have eternal security. I'm going to get them to the last day. All that the Father gave me. There are people the Father gave the Son. It's not all people. It can't be, or all people would be saved. It's some people. John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. Father gave me this group of people to redeem. I'm not going to lose one of them. They'll all be in Christ at the last day. I'm going to get them all safely to the resurrection. They're going to keep on believing. They're going to persevere. They're going to keep on repenting. I'm going to raise every one of them up at the last day. Who gets raised in Christ at the last day? Question. Answer. The people the Father gave to the Son. Or John 6.65. And he said, there are people grumbling about him in John 6.64. They don't like Christ. They're grumbling. I don't like the Savior. I don't like what he's saying. I don't like what he's teaching. And Jesus says, let me explain to you all why they're grumbling and not receiving me. Let me explain to you all why they're rejecting and not believing. Here's why. John 6.65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Have you come to Jesus Christ? Why were you able to do that? It was granted to you by the Father. That plainly means there are other people to whom it is not granted. This is why they're grumbling and not coming to Christ. It was not granted to them to believe. Paul says to the Philippians, by the way, to you was granted not only to believe, but to suffer for his sake. Let's jump over to John chapter 10. The same thing. The children God has given me. It gets expanded by Jesus here in John 10. John 10, 15. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. There's sheep and there's goats. At the last day, he'll separate the sheep from the goats. Sheep go to heaven. Goats go to hell. And he says, I'm laying down my life. Specifically, there's a definite thing going on here for the sheep. And I have other sheep, that's Gentile sheep, that are not of this fold, that's Jewish sheep. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Not, oh, I hope I can get them to believe on me. No, they will listen, because he'll send his Holy Spirit to regenerate them and cause them to listen and turn their wills, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd, John 10, 15, and 16. Finally, one more passage, John 10, 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice. Why does this one hear Christ's voice somewhere in his lifetime, and that one never hears Christ's voice anywhere in his lifetime? And Jesus is telling us why, because that one's my sheep. All who are my sheep, they're the people the Father gave to the Son and said, go down and redeem them, get them to the cross, get them to the resurrection. My sheep will hear my voice, and I, I know them. He knew who everyone was. He wasn't like, I don't know, I'm just dying for an indiscriminate mass. I hope somebody will believe on me someday. No, no, no. I know them, 
and they follow me. They will, it's definite. And I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand and my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So when in Hebrews 2, quoting Isaiah, Jesus says, I and the children God has given me, we need to plug in John 6 and John 10. That's what he's talking about. He was conscious that there were children, not all humanity. There were children that the Father gave to the Son. The Son laid his life down for those sheep. The Son promises they will believe. The Son promises he will raise them up at the last day. They'll persevere. They'll be there. You won't lose them along, along the way. So what are we seeing in theological terms? We are definitely seeing divine eternal election, definite atonement, effectual calling, perseverance of the saints, and glorification. Just had to point all that out to you. Because what we get in small in Isaiah 8 and what we get a little note of in Hebrews 2 gets expanded in John 6 and John 10. The children God has given me. Back to our theme, okay? Back to the sermon. That was the aside. Back to the sermon. The sermon's about why did Christ have to suffer? And why do we have to suffer? And apologetic for suffering. And, well, we're going to close there with, with that verse. Hebrews 2.13, let's see it again. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. It was fitting. It was fitting. So, four closing um, observations. Number one, Hebrews 1 and 2 present Jesus Christ as God and man. All right, I think that was clear, right? He's presented as divine and human. The, the, this, these passages, chapters 1 and 2, were actually very key, very important passages way back in the year 300. It was 325, I think, where there was a great church council called because heretics were arising, and they were spouting heresies, some of them denying the humanity of Christ and others denying the deity of Christ and others making up fanciful theories about how the natures didn't mingle at all and he was a, like a divided thing as, as Savior and God. But they, they called great church councils and said, we got to look into this. They studied their brains out in the Bible, and they decided Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, one person, two natures, perfectly commingled, period. And one of the key texts they used was Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2. Look, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, he's divine, he's God. And the rest, all the way down through where we are in chapter 2, and he was fully human and truly human. So accept and receive the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. I know we haven't talked about the Holy Spirit. He's in there too. He's God also. Love it. Delight in it. Rejoice in it. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And believe what John says in 1 John 2, 23. If anyone denies the Son, that's Jehovah's Witnesses, he does not have the Father. You can't deny the Son and still have the Father. If you deny the Son, His deity and His humanity, and His cross work and His salvific work, if you deny the Son, neither do you have the Father. Hebrews 1 and 2 presents Jesus Christ as God and man. Second thing in closing, please, then, please don't be like these unbelieving Hebrews, grumbling and complaining. I don't like this Christian life. It's suffering. I don't get it. If I was God, and perish the thought if you were God, 
If, if I was God, I wouldn't let my children suffer. Why would a loving God let me suffer like this? Well, he let Christ suffer. Have you been beaten? Have you been crowned with thorns? Have you been crucified? All right, then you're not even close. You need to do more of what Paul tells the Philippians. He says, these sufferings I have, I'm in jail, I'm suffering all this. He says, I'm filling up what I lack in the sufferings of Christ. We lack in the suffering. We're not even close to the sufferings of Christ. You could suffer a whole lot more, and you wouldn't be up to the level of the sufferings of Christ. So who are you to think, well, I should only get a little thimbleful of suffering, and he should get boatloads poured on him? No, no. My Redeemer suffered. I'm willing to suffer with him. And don't be like these unbelieving Hebrews, and don't be like people who are walking back their faith in our day, deconstructing their faith in our day, who say, well, I don't get it. God is God. Why is there all this suffering? I don't get it. Why should Christians have to suffer? I don't get it. Why should Jesus have to suffer? Why can't God just forgive everybody? Why did there have to be a cross? Why did there have to be an... And why, 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 why? God help you, friend. You are full of unbelief. And you need to be believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving the word of God and loving it, embracing it. Don't be like these unbelieving Hebrews. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and stop grumbling. Here's a third thing in closing. Christ's suffering can help you make sense of your suffering. Amen? It's kind of hinted at as we went. My Savior suffered. He suffered all the normal things that humans suffer long before the cross. Let's imagine him, he's young and he went to school. I don't know if he went to school, he's probably homeschooled. Anyway, let's say he went to school. Maybe Christ got bullied, right? Maybe he suffered that. Just imagine all kinds of other ways. He suffered, he was fully human. He wasn't, God didn't create some bubble around him and Jesus lived in a suffer-free zone. Now, anything you might have suffered as a human, he suffered something in that category. Remember again, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Have you ever had grief? Have you grieved a loss? Christ grieved. He was acquainted with grief. It's what makes him a great high priest. He can be merciful and gracious to his people when they suffer. But Christ's suffering can help you make sense of your suffering. It is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. My Savior suffered. I will suffer in his name. I will trust him. I will cling to him. I will hold to him. I will not allow suffering to cause me to loosen my grip on Jesus Christ or to walk back my faith. Lord, give me grace because I am weak. You are strong. Give me grace for my suffering. I'm afraid I might deny you. I'm afraid I might complain to you. Lord, give me grace so I don't do that. And now I can understand Christ suffered, I'm suffering because of the fall. Finally, number four, don't please, please don't let suffering deter you from following Jesus Christ wholly, wholly, completely. The devil will use anything he can to pry you away from Jesus Christ. We saw last week, he'll use the thing like the holy angels. He was using angels to pry them away from Jesus Christ. He'll also use suffering, one of his favorite tools. When you go through suffering, this is a serious time in your life. Let's see what's going to happen. Are you going to cling to Christ the more? Are you going to call out to him? Are you going to worship and bow and bless? Are you going to bow before him in his sovereignty? 
or are you going to start to grumble and complain and I don't see why and are you going to loosen your grip and ultimately you're going to walk away from Jesus Christ suffering is a very important thing in your life what are you going to do with it where is it going to drive you oh let your suffering drive you to follow Jesus Christ holy establish in your soul he is Lord I am servant he is potter I am clay he may do with the clay as he wishes I will bless him and glorify him and honor him and follow him get that down in your soul so that when a little bit of suffering comes your way, you're not surprised. Peter says, don't be surprised by these fiery trials. Fiery trial comes your way. I'm not surprised by that. I expected that. Jesus had fiery trials. I'm willing to have fiery trials too. Please don't let suffering deter you from following Jesus Christ holy. Not your suffering and not suffering on the planet. Please don't be in that group that says, I don't understand all the suffering. Why all the suffering? If God is God, I just can't believe because of all the suffering. Please don't let all the suffering cause you to suffer in hell forever. No, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you understand suffering. God is using it as he brings many sons to glory. Well, amen. Let's bow and pray together. Thank you, Father, for this time your holy presence. Thank you for your word. Please use your word. May it come in the power of the Holy Spirit to save some and to sanctify others progressively. We pray for our world and ask that you would shine light into this dark, dark place, into our nation in these days. We, we mourn for the evil that is so present and affirmed and ask, O oh Lord, that you will cause the gospel to run in Holy Spirit power, and that you'll call many to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in our suffering, O oh Father, for we are weak. We lean ourselves wholly upon Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Amen. Hey, would you like to talk with a Cornerstone pastor? We love it when that happens. We like to talk to you. Here's the easy way to make it happen. You can just text the word pastor to the number on the screen. One of our guys will get with you quickly, like quickly means sometime this week. So give us that opportunity. We would love it. Thank you.